0: Scripture reading will be from Acts chapter 20 this morning, Acts 20, beginning in verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's pray. Lord, I just again thank you for your wisdom and your leading of your body, the church. And I pray, God, that we would again just um, yield, Lord, and, and, and thank you in faith for all that you have revealed to us of your will for your body. And that it would be clear to us and that we would be obedient to you, Lord, in all things. We thank you, God, for your, your loving headship over us. And that we can trust you and know that we will never be misled. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we were looking at the qualifications of an elder from 1 Timothy chapter 3. And um, those qualifications are highly significant. In fact, they're non-negotiables. Paul started out by saying these things must be true. But all those qualifications um, don't really just specifically lay out what the responsibilities, what the roles of an elder are. We can get some hints from those qualifications, but there are other passages of Scripture that speak more to what it is that an elder is to do. And the best place to go for those passages is really the book of Acts. And so that's why the Scripture reading this morning from Acts chapter 20, and there's a couple of other passages in Acts as well. Two things to keep in mind about church government and structure and the role of elders um, that I think should inform all of our um, inspection of a church and and when we're looking for a church and wondering is that church functioning as God intended or not. Um, There are a lot of different forms of government in churches, but two things um, should always be in place irrespective of the form of government and not just lip service given to these things. One and the primary thing is the headship of Jesus Christ. If that church is not actively seeking to know Christ and His will and submitted to His authority, then we're just another organization. And we are not an organism that is functioning in response to the head. But we're an organization who's just seeking to go out and do what we want and, or what we think is God's will and ask for God's blessing. But the church is to actually, literally be directed by Christ himself. So the authority of a church is not elders. It is Christ and his word. And a a healthy church, a biblical church, is truly seeking to know him and to live in response to him. And the second thing is the priesthood of the believers. A healthy church is understanding that there is nobody in the church who has more of the Holy Spirit than another person. Elders do not have more of the Spirit than non-elders do. We all have Christ in all that He is. The Scripture says, Jesus says, that the Spirit of God is given without measure. And so there is no person in the church that has more of the Holy Spirit than another person. We all have been gifted by God, and, and the church is built up when every person is functioning according to his gifts to the mutual edification and building up of the body of Christ. So there is no person that is indispensable, and there is no person who is dispensable. All people are necessary for the healthy growing of the body of Christ. There are no little people when it comes to the body of Christ. We all need each other, and the body of Christ needs each individual. So those are the two main things to keep in mind, the headship of Christ and the priesthood of the believers. I, for a long time, have heard about an experiment that was conducted, and um, I wanted to make sure I'd heard about it accurately, so I actually found it on the Internet. Back in the, I think it was the 1950s, a Harvard University professor by the name of Milgram ran an experiment to see um, if people will be, are inclined to do whatever authority tells them to do. And the reason he was interested in running this experiment was because the Nuremberg trials were just being concluded, and um, and and soldier after soldier, officer after officer, in those World War II, post World War II war crime trials that were taking place, one man after another said, "We were just following orders." And so what was going on around the world was well the German people had just been so brainwashed they were more disposed, predisposed to to listen to authority and put their consciences in check and just do whatever they were told than most people of the world are predisposed to do. And so this Harvard professor said, I don't know if that's true that people will so willingly set aside their conscience because of what an authority figure says. And so he ran this experiment. And in it he, um, he just pulled people in off the street, paid them 4 dollars 5 just for showing up back in the 1950s, and, and, he, um, and he set up a scenario fooling them, and he told them two people are going to be volunteers, you and this other person, and the other person was not a volunteer. But the volunteer thought the other person was volunteer. And he said, what we're going to do is we're going to draw straws, and one of you is going to be the teacher, and one of you is going to be the student. Well, it was all rigged so that the volunteer, the actual volunteer, was always the teacher. And so he says, okay, you're the teacher, and you're going to teach this person, the student, word association pairs. And so once he's learned them all, then you're going to quiz him. And any time he's wrong, you're going to give him a shock, an actual electrical shock. And we're going to start with 15 volts, and we're going to go up to 450 volts. And so there's a box there, and it's marked, each one, you know, 15 volts, 30 volts, all the way up to 450 volts. And so the student, who's not actually a student but an actor, has been prompted to act like he's getting the, the questions wrong. So he's missing a lot of questions. And every time he gets one wrong, the guy is supposed to shock him the next higher level. And the test is to see how far will the teacher go because he is simply doing what authority tells him to do. And the results were astounding. 100% of the people went up to 300 volts. At 300 volts, the person is screaming like he's dying. And anything over 300 volts, and the actor, the student, is going non-responsive. So as far as you know, he is unconscious or he is dead on the other side of the wall. But you can hear his screams. And so... 100% Three, 100% of the people went up to 300 volts. They are willingly inflicting harm, torturing a person that they have never met just because an authority figure says, do it. 65% of the participants went all the way up to 450 volts. And these are people from, from all age groups, all walks of life, and just to make sure that this guy wasn't, this, this professor gotten the wrong results, it's been replicated. In countries all across the Western world for many years since then with the same results. That 65% of the population will willingly kill someone just because the authority tells them to do so. Now, how does that bear on the body of Christ? We aren't any different. And again, this is why the authority structure of a church is so important. And I believe we see the wisdom of God that it isn't just one person, who's in charge of a church. Christ is in charge of the church. Men are not ultimately in charge of the church. Jesus is. And with a plurality of elders, there's a check and balances. And it's a much less likely that one person is going to begin taking and assuming authority that isn't his. And so that, is that elder board recognizes we are not in charge here. Jesus is in charge. Our goal is to submit to him and so we collectively come together and, are, and, and want to maintain that place of humility and submission just so that we are not taking advantage of people's willingness to just follow authority. But again, with the priesthood of believers in mind, we should never just walk into church and say, well, I just have to check my conscience at the door and do whatever anybody tells me to do because they're the spiritual guy. He's been to seminary after all. He's a pastor. He's an elder. God forbid We each have the Holy Spirit. We each have the Word of God. And we are not to just check our conscience because a person in authority is telling us to do something, particularly when it doesn't square with the Word of God. So we ought to be the kind of people who say, you're asking me to do what? I don't think so. How does that square with what I know to be true of God and know to be true of His Word? So in looking at these passages... Um, We'll come back to Acts 20, but just quickly on the two brief passages that precede Acts 20. In Acts chapter 5 is the first place where we get an idea of what the role of an elder is, what his principal role is. Um, Acts chapter 6, I'm sorry. Acts chapter 6. And the problem here is that the Hellenistic widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the apostles who were at this time functioning as elders in a very brief time it's going to be apostles and elders, but here it's still just apostles. They said in verse two, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, "It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables." So we see that they see our priority is the is the word of God, which would seem to infer the teaching of God's word, that the people of God would be taught in the scriptures. That is our priority. They're not saying we don't care about people, but they're saying our priority is the Scripture. And then verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Honestly, from what I can tell, most elders do not do that. They are not devoting themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. It doesn't mean that every elder in a church is going to be a teacher, but he ought to be growing in his knowledge of the Word and making sure one of those individuals who's working to guard the church And to shepherd the church in all that is true according to Scripture. And we all, as elders especially, need to be praying people. And so again, it's not that people are set aside. This is the ministry to people. We underestimate the power of prayer, what God does through prayer. And elders of all people should be the people who say our first response is not to jump in and try and fix the problem, but our first response is to seek God, because God is the Savior. We are not people's saviors. And if the elders think they're anybody's Savior, then they're not going to be praying. But we understand there's nothing we can do. People's problems are due to sin, and the only Savior from sin is Jesus. And so spiritually-minded elders will be praying men. Because they know only God can address this problem. Because the problem is a sin problem and only Jesus can save us from our sin. So we seek God in prayer, knowing that God hears our prayers. James says, the effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the elder believes that. And so he is seeking God first. His first response is not to get involved and try and solve the problem, but to seek God in prayer. And he is not neglecting the church when he does that and the ministry of the word. And then over in Acts 15, interesting passage. Where first in Acts 14, verse 23, Paul's saying that as he, he'd just been stoned and left for dead, and he goes right back into the city where they just pract- almost killed him, and, and, he, and he goes back to that city and two other cities, and in the process, he appoints elders in every place, it says. Verse 23 of Acts 14. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, so this becomes now, they're, they're transitioning from apostles to elders. And, and he says, every church is to have elders. We've already seen in 1 Timothy 3 that those elders are to be men, and there's always a plurality, meaning two at least. How many more? It never says. But if it's plural, and it's always plural, that means at least two. Again, because the headship is Christ, it is not men, there is not a man appointed, one man appointed to take the place of Jesus and His authority. So then in chapter 15, a problem comes to the elder board of the church in Jerusalem that they had nothing to do with causing, which is often the way it is. One of the roles of an old elder board is to, is to sort through problems prayerfully and wisely. And oftentimes the elder board is having to deal with issues that were not of its making. And the people need to understand that. They didn't cause this problem. But it's been thrust upon them and they are seeking God for the wisdom and the grace to handle this problem in a way that is true to Christ. But they aren't the problem. They didn't cause it. The problem here in particular is that there were Christian Jews who were going into the city of Antioch and other places and saying, Paul is a heretic. Because Paul is not having the new Gentile converts get circumcised and keep the law. In fact, they're even going so far as to saying Paul is even telling the Jewish converts that they no longer have to circumcise their children, which was just a flat-out lie. And so Paul has these people that are undermining his ministry and slandering what he's teaching. And so the people in Antioch, they're Gentiles. And they're dealing with people from Jerusalem who are Jewish Christians who are saying this. And so the elders in Antioch were not saying that there is a higher elder board down in Jerusalem, let's appeal to them. There is nothing in Scripture to indicate that any one church elder board had supervision or authority over another church's elder board. There were no church councils like that, where there was a hierarchy of structure between churches. Each church was independent. Each church was to manage its own affairs. So this is not a lower-rung church appealing to a higher-rung church. This was the Antioch going, we don't even know what this problem is. We just know these people aren't from our church. They're from Jerusalem. So let's get Jerusalem involved. So it wasn't because Jerusalem was regarded as a more authoritative church. It's just the Jerusalem church, this is their problem. This is their people who are going out and teaching this false stuff about Paul. And so the Antioch church is saying, Jerusalem, if you don't mind... This is really a problem that you should be addressing. And they recognize they're right. We need to take this up. This is our people that are causing this problem. And so they bring Paul in and they listen to Paul. They bring the Judaizers in. They listen to them. And then Peter and James, two of the apostles' elders, stand up and start talking. In verse 6, it's Peter and the apostles. And you see, the apostles and the elders. So no longer is it just apostles. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and Peter just uses his own personal testimony of how God worked in him to have Gentiles come to faith in Christ. And so if God gave the gospel to the Gentiles and they are saved in the same way that a Jew is saved, by faith, through grace, then there is no reason why they should put something extra onto the Gentiles. It's well and done. Well and good. But Peter... That's simply personal testimony. And as good as personal testimony is, it is not the final authority. Everybody has their own testimony. Okay? And it's pretty crazy some of the things that people testify to. I hear stuff all the time. I know you too. People come up to you and say, man, this is what I dreamed last night. This is what God said to me. This is what happened to me. What do you think about that? And I'm going, you know, just like I've said before. Everybody has spiritual experiences just like everybody has a belly button. It doesn't mean it's valid just because you've had this experience. And so Peter stands up and says, this has been my experience. Great, Peter. Thank you for that. And then James stands up and says, let's look at the Word of God. Okay, And that is the final authority, as it should be in the church. What does God say in His Word? So it says, in, after Peter had given his testimony, it says in verse 13... And after they had stopped speaking, which is the best time to start speaking when everybody else has stopped, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. And he starts out brothers. He doesn't start out underlings. Okay? He doesn't start out sheep. Listen to the shepherd. He says brethren. So again, elders understand they are one among equals. Okay? They are not superior to the people. They are not elevated... And above the people who are now, all of a sudden, they've had this, this role that, they, that separates them from the people. They, they have a responsibility and they have authority, but they are still brethren. And, and James wisely acknowledges that. Brethren. James answered saying, saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among Gentiles a people for his name. Testimony. Personal experience. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, the word of God. Here's his experience, and then let's look what Scripture says. And Scripture agrees with everything Peter is saying in his experience. So the final authority was not Peter's experience, it was the word of God. This is what elders are to do. They are to be able to handle handle God's word in such a way that when people come and say, this is my experience, they can go back to God's word and say, you know, that is absolutely true to what God says. Or they can say, I don't see anything in the Bible that says anything like that. Like getting slain in the Spirit. Holy laughter. Barking like dogs. And I know people that are committed to these things. And they go, Charlie, you don't know how loving this church is. Yeah, they're rolling around the floor and barking like dogs. And, and, but the, you don't, I have never sensed the love of God like I have in this church. and There have been several times now I've had individuals tell me that. And so the love of God justifies everything. So experience is their authority, not the Scripture, not the Word of God. And the Word of God says one of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And when a person is under the control of the Spirit, he will not be out of control. That is what the Word of God says. And so how can we say these things are right just because I feel that it's right? Okay, that's Peter. We're not to be Peter, we're to be James. Okay, that experience is just an experience. What does the word of God say? And James says everything that Peter's saying squares 100% with what scripture says. So then you can accept the experience. That's what an elder does. Now, we don't need to get into the rest of chapter 15. We can see the tone and and the and the and the thrust of the elders and how they're functioning. And when they come back to Scripture, in this particular case, they go, there is nothing that Scripture is putting on the Gentiles except for three things. And I believe those three things are summarized in maintain the sanctity of worship, maintain the sanctity of life, and maintain, um, what was the third thing? The sanctity of worship, life, and marriage. Those are the three things. So he says in verse 29... No greater burden would the Holy Spirit put upon you than these essentials that you abstain from the things sacrificed to idols, that's the sanctity of worship, and from blood, which also has to do with worship. And then he says, and from things strangled, that's the, that's the sanctification of life, and from, things, and from fornication, the, sanctification, the, uh, the sanctity of marriage. So those are three non-negotiables essentials on every people group, whether they're Jewish or Gentile. These are things that God would put upon us all. And so they've come back to the Word of God, and they've not, and they says, and again, this is what a good elder will do. What does God's Word say? And we will not say one word more than Scripture. That is a very hard thing to do. Because again, as you've heard me say, most theological systems are built upon taking a truth of Scripture and looking for how that logically leads to other things. And we end up teaching these these logical inferences rather than teaching the clear teachings of Scripture. One example I've given before, it is a logical inference to me that babies go to heaven when they die. But there is nothing in Scripture that clearly says babies go to heaven when they die. So that is not a teaching, not a doctrine that I'm going to divide with on anybody. Because I can't go to chapter and verse where it clearly says babies go to heaven when they die. I believe it with all my heart. But that is not something that I, can, that I can firmly support scripturally. So I have to hold it loosely. Okay? I, I think that it's one of those things that God hasn't spoken to, hasn't clearly told us. Perhaps the reason He hasn't told us is because He knows the sinfulness of our hearts. And He knows if He had told us clearly babies go to heaven when they die, then there would be a lot more babies being killed because parents would think they're sending them off to heaven. And God knows the corruption and the evil of our heart in protecting babies. It may be the very reason why God hasn't told us what happens to babies when they die. But I don't know. So, the role of an elder, what does Scripture say? And don't say one thing more than what Scripture says. It's a very hard discipline because we're constantly adding to Scripture, reading into Scripture. And we have to be careful about this. I was working with through Ezekiel 36 a few years ago a few weeks ago with our second year students and it's Ezekiel 36 as you know says that our sin shall be forgiven the heart of stone shall be removed and we will be given a new heart that we will be given a new spirit and the holy spirit will be given to us four things and i was telling second year students i said when we look at this passage it says the heart of stone is removed and a new heart is given but when it speaks of the new spirit, it doesn't say the old spirit is given, taken away and a new spirit is given. So afterwards, the students were having a little bit of debate among themselves and saying Charlie was reading into Scripture. Now, I'm not immune from doing that. We can all do it. If I've been reading into Scripture, I want to know about it. And so we talked about it at the next class hour. And they said, we think you're reading into Scripture. You're supposing that the old nature is not, the old spirit is not taken away. You're supposing that. And I said, No. I'm supposing that it's removed, not removed. You are supposing that it is removed. Because the text simply says a new spirit is given to us. The text does not say the old spirit was removed. So if you think the old spirit was removed, it is you that is reading into the text. You're saying more than the text says. I'm just letting it say what it says. The, the, that the old heart was removed... And a new heart was given, but it does not say the old spirit was removed and a new spirit was given. It just simply says new spirit was given. So it would be better to assume the old spirit is not removed because it doesn't say it was removed than to say that it was removed. Okay, rabbit trail. Okay, but you get the point. Don't say a word more than what Scripture says. Now, chapter 20. This is the main passage in Acts on the roles of elders. And from Miletus, I'm starting in verse 17 now. And from Miletus, he, set, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So Paul is passing near Ephesus. He's on, the, on ship heading back down to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested and, and come under Roman um, imprisonment. He's 40 miles away from Ephesus when he lands. And so he says, while we're so close be a great chance to talk to the Ephesian elders. So he sent word to them. They traveled the 40 miles, the whole group of elders, we don't know how many, and they came and spent some time there with Ephesus before the ship took off again. And so when they had come down to him, he said to them, and first he's going to remind them of his own way that he behaved, which is important because Paul is the model for how elders are to conduct themselves. So even though he's, only talking, he's talking about himself, he's saying this so that they would serve the church in the same way that he has. So verse 18, when they had come down to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. So one of the first things about an elder is he is with the people. Again, this doesn't make, mean that all elders are going to be extroverts. If that's the case, I'm disqualified. Okay? It's, it's not that you have to be an extrovert, but you have to be among the people. You, there, you have to be relating to people, knowing people, building relationships with people. And that was Paul's example here. How from the first day I, that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. And then serving the Lord. So in his serving of the Lord, he's serving the people, yes, But his first motivation was not to serve people. It was to serve the Lord. And that's an important distinction to make. The thing that is motivating him is the Lord, Christ. And you can be so motivated by people that you are not being led by the Lord. And this is where a lot of pastors get in trouble with their children. I honestly believe they are motivated to be with the people, but they are not necessarily being led by the Lord they may be driven by the expectations of an elder board who's wanting that pastor to do everything, and the pastor ends up neglecting his family. But I believe that if that, if that pastor is listening to the Lord, serving the Lord, he's not going to just ignore his wife and children. Because the first priority for that man, elder, pastor, or laity, whatever, and I don't think there's a distinction, laity and clergy, but the first priority for that man, as he is for any, any other man, the Lord is first. And the Lord is going to say, your family is first, before the family of God. And so that pastor has got to give that time to his wife and children. When our kids were, were growing up at home, you all know, I've said it before, my practice has been, and i have gone, God, I don't know how this is going to work out. But, you know, I've got my day job and I'm supposed to be preaching on Sundays. And I was told in seminary to spend an hour preparing for every minute that you spend for every minute that you preach. So if I'm preaching 45 minutes, that's 45 hours of preparation. How does that work? You know, there's not enough hours in the day. There's not enough hours in the week. Plus, I have wife and children. And, and so I was going, Lord, I'm going to have to trust you with this, because I believe this is something you've given. I haven't gone seeking it. And I believe if you've given it, you will supply the grace for it. And so I've done my day job and haven't used his hill hours, for the most part, to, to prepare for preaching on Sunday. And I've spent time with my family every evening as they were growing up. And Saturdays, we would have our pizza night, watch a movie, and after the kids were in bed, I'd go down to the office and cry out to God. <laughs> I'm going, I've got to preach Sunday. And this is the and you know, and I'm going, How's this gonna work? And there were times I was down there till twelve o'clock, one o'clock in the morning. It's just typically not that late any longer, but but the kids aren't aren't at home, so I'm getting more time during the week, you know, and on Saturdays and things. But but I said, God, I have to trust you with this because I know that these obligations in your mind, in your economy, don't conflict. An obligation to your people, an obligation to the family you've given me, in your mind, what I'm saying is, there's not enough hours. But the eternal God doesn't need a lot of hours. He is not constricted by time. I'm constricted by time. Jesus isn't. And so I can trust Him for this. And I, and I, and I stand amazed. I shouldn't be. It's my own lack of faith. But I stand amazed over the years of how God has supplied as I have trusted him with this, that he would balance what seemed to be competing obligations. And, I, and, I, and again, man, if, if I had the opportunity to, to, to teach other elders, I would say, trust God. Trust God. You are serving God. You are not, your head is not in the news serving people. You are serving God. And in your service to God, you can trust him. For your obligations to people and your obligations to your family, and there are times when you're going to have to say no to people, because your family needs you. Patsy and I are going to take a few days um, starting on Friday, because I've neglected my wife, quite honestly. And we've had and, and that's not because of time schedules or anything else, it's just my own personal irresponsibility toward my wife. And, and I can't blame a busy schedule or anything else. It's just I have neglected her. And so we've had a good talk about that and what needs to happen. And one of the things clearly the Lord's made clear to me is you need to just get away and be with your wife. So Friday through the middle of the next week, we're going to go spend some time together. We need to do that. But again, that is my first priority. And if I'm not loving my wife and loving my kids, what business again do I have being an elder of a church? And so, this is what Paul is expressing here. And he's modeling that here for the family of God and for these elders. He says in verse 19, Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials, in all the aspects of life, characterized by humility. And again, how much we long to see that. Tears, trials, all, All these trials that came upon me, all the plots of the Jews, I served the Lord with humility. I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything. He says that twice, so that's obviously very important. Down in verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Honestly, I think that whether it's conscious or not, this is why a lot of pastors don't preach through the Bible verse by verse. Because if you're preaching topical messages, you can avoid the passages that that you know would get you in trouble. But when you preach through the Bible, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, you can't avoid preaching the whole counsel of God. And some of it doesn't make you very popular. But one of the aspects of an elder, not just the preacher, but the elders, is that they are to be courageous men. They are shepherds. And that's one of the things that an elder is. He's a shepherd. A shepherd, if he is anything, he loves the people. He loves the sheep. And because he loves the sheep, he is willing to risk his life for the sheep. Now, the crazy thing about we people as sheep is even though real literal sheep don't have fangs and, and claws and all that, we do. And so sometimes in loving the sheep, we experience, elders experience what shepherds don't experience. The sheep turn and attack. But in the name of loving them and wanting them not to go off into error, run off into the woods, you try to bring them back, you try to counsel them, and you can be, it can turn against you. But you don't stop trying. You have to be people of courage. This is what God says to do. This is what God's word is all about. Like me saying that elders can only be men. It's taking more and more courage to say that, quite honestly. But it's what the Scripture says. And I think I can understand it, and I think I can explain it pretty well. But even if I couldn't understand it or explain it, it is what the Scripture says. And so you have to go with what God says. And it will cost you. you may, we, we, a church may never become a big mega church because the elders are men of courage, who are confronting sin, who are teaching God's Word, who are dealing with the things that are there, courageously, selflessly. It may keep a church small. So what? Really, I mean, our business is not to grow the size of the tent. Our business is Jesus and His Word. And if the church gets bigger, praise God. If the church gets smaller, praise God. Our business is Jesus and his word. Nothing else. That is the primary responsibility of the elders. Not how big the church is getting or even if the church is shrinking. Look at yourself. Why is the church shrinking? I need to go after people and ask them what's going on. But the growth of the church, the size of the church, is not our business. Our business is Jesus and his word. So he says, I didn't shrink back from anything. Solemnly testifying, verse 21, of both Jews and Greeks of, the, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he says, I, did not, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Selfless love. And again, that selfless love will motivate him to be courageous. But I wanted to look principally and especially at verse 28. Be on your guard. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. This is again, other than praying and the ministry of the word, the shepherd's role is to guard. He didn't, this is pastoral. Again, a literal shepherd. The sheep are basically going to feed themselves. Yes, he's leading them into green pastures. But he's not putting the grass in their mouth. They are expected to eat. They are expected to feed themselves. But they are not expected to protect themselves from every danger. Because the shepherd is the one who is standing guard and looking out for the dangers. And there is a sense in which that is the role of the elder as well. And, And again, we get this backwards as people. We think the elders, the pastor's first role is to love me and make me feel good. That is not his first role. In love for you, he is to guard you. In love for you, he is to teach you, instruct you. You are not necessarily always going to feel that you're getting stroked the way you want by the elders. But again, this is where the body of Christ, we minister to one another. We all need to be ministered to. I understand that but sometimes we think it should come exclusively or primarily from the elders. That's something I don't think we can get from scripture. Their role is is not primarily that. It is a part of what they do, but the biggest thing, pray, minister God's word and be on guard for themselves and for the flock. I want to read something here. I really appreciate it that I came across. It says in order to fulfill their task The elders must first diligently protect their own spiritual condition. An elder cannot guard the spiritual lives of others if he cannot guard his own soul. Matthew Henry said, Those are not likely to be skillful or faithful keepers of the vineyards of others who do not keep their own. And so then this writer goes on, So Paul wisely charges the elders to first keep watch over their own spiritual lives. Satan knows that if he can destroy the shepherds, he can swiftly invade and devour the flock. And then a long quote from someone else. Take heed to yourselves, elders, because the tempter will make his first and sharpest attack on you. He knows what devastation he is likely to make among the rest if he can make the leaders fall before their eyes. He has long practiced fighting, neither against great nor small, "...comparatively but against the shepherds, that he might scatter the flock. Take heed then, for the enemy has a special eye on you. You are sure to have his most subtle insinuations, incessant solicitations, and violent assaults. Take heed to yourselves, lest he outwit you. The devil is a greater scholar than you are, and a more nimble disputant. And whenever he prevails against you, he will make you the instrument of your own ruin." Do not allow him to use you as the Philistines used Samson, first to deprive you of your strength, then put out your eyes, and finally to make you the subject of his triumph and derision. So then elders, therefore, must take whatever action is necessary to guard their daily walk with God. They must faithfully engage in prayer and scripture reading. They must guard against any hint of indifference to divine truth. Peter warns, be on guard... Be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. In the same vein, a former professor at Regent College reminds us that that error has many attractive faces by which even the most experienced may be beguiled. Elders must also guard themselves against being ensnared by the pleasures and cares of this world. They must guard against bitterness of heart, discouragement, spiritual laziness, and unbelief. They must keep their minds and hearts firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. I can't guard others if I'm not guarding my own life. That is what Paul is saying to the elders. In addition to guarding themselves, elders must also guard guard the flock. The command to guard the flock means that the elders must keep their minds on the church. They must be watchful and observant. They must be attentive at all times to the spiritual well-being of the people. They must watch for people who have wandered off from the flock or for new believers who are struggling to survive. They must constantly be on alert to to dangers both from outside the flock and from within it. They must know about new trends and doctrines that will influence the people. We're not always going to get it right. And coming back to the experiment about conscience and authority, I understand. The elder is not to be a substitute for your own conscience. But there's also, it woven into these roles and responsibilities that the elder has, there is authority. And when people in your life that love you and have some semblance of spiritual authority over you are saying to you, be cautious. You should give second thought to this. Whether it's a doctrinal influence or an activity or an association, wisdom would say, Listen to what these people are saying. I'm telling you, as an elder or a Bible school director or whatever, even as just friends among friends, brethren among brethren, it is costly to step forward and tell people what they may not really want to hear. And if somebody is willing to take that cost, respect it. Don't just blow it off and say they're just trying to be divisive, they're just trying to make my life hard. They're speaking lovingly into your life. Maybe they're wrong, maybe. But they're not being motivated by by their own self-will. They're being motivated by a love for you and hopefully being instructed in their minds and hearts by the word of God. And if they're saying, we are concerned about where this is going to lead you, listen to them. Be on guard for yourselves and for the flock. He says in Again, verse 28, continuing on, he says, Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In every instance in the New Testament, the churches appointed the elders, or Paul one of the, or Timothy, one of the apostles, did. Timothy was an apostle, but he was working under Paul. But it, the idea was that as time went on, after the initial elders had been appointed, that they would be appointed from within the body. We understand that. What Paul is saying is the elder needs to understand that it wasn't men, it was God who put him in this position so that he would serve as unto God in the fear of God and in reverence to the Lord. He has been appointed by the Holy Spirit to be overseers, to shepherd. These are the words, elder, overseer, um, um, shepherd, pastor. These are all the different words the scripture uses. And then the church of God Which he purchased with his own blood. Man, the church at times these epistles they were at times a mess. The church in Corinth, the church in churches of Galatia, they weren't perfect churches by any stretch. And yet we don't hear Paul or anyone else negative about the church. We often are too negative about the church, the body of Christ. There is no perfect body. I think ours comes as close to it as anything could. And it is not perfect. You guys know that. But to be negative about the church that Jesus purchased with his own blood, he is not negative about his church. Neither should we be. Honestly, it's been one of the things that I've been concerned about the emergent church, that movement. They are so negative about the church, the evangelical church. While they can be so positive about Hindus and Buddhists and, and, and you know, Catholics and, and so many other things, they have almost nothing bad to say. But when it comes to the evangelical church, almost nothing good to say. That concerns me. I know that after my departure, verse 29, savage wolves, this is not, it could happen, I know it's going to happen. Savage wolves, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. So there's two sources, two doors for a wolf to enter. One is through the front door. And the other is right from among us. And so it's a constant vigilance. And again, this is why we need a plurality of elders. Because any one individual can start straying, even as an elder. We're not immune to this. And so the other elders can speak up and say, we're concerned, brother. You need to pull back from this. This is becoming an emphasis that's bigger than Jesus, you know, or, or whatever the concern would be. And so the wolves will come. And so elders, again, part of their duty is to be able to spot them and to inform the flock and to protect the flock. And, and again, there's so many things, so many trends that seem like they're impressive and powerful and flashy. And they, and they take us away, as Paul was talking about in 1 Timothy 1, from that simplicity of faith in Christ. And, and we have to constantly be coming back to him. I know the a church, um, I don't know it personally, I've only read the story from the pastor. And they were a Bible-believing, verse-by-verse preaching church. And they had over a thousand people in the church. It may have been two thousand. Well, they switched overnight. All the pastors went to a signs and wonders conference, and they all come back, came back preaching signs and wonders. And the whole church just shifted overnight. And so, the, very soon, the pastor, this lead pastor, says it became apparent that the most popular people in the church were those who had the gift of prophecy. And people weren't bringing their Bibles to church anymore. They didn't need it because they weren't preaching through it. And so they started bringing little notebooks so they could could hear from one of the prophets and write down a prophecy that they might hear that Sunday. And so very shortly after a few years, none of those prophecies were coming true. They were always grandiose, always very positive, and none of them ever happened. And so the counselors in the church became inundated with people whose faith was being destroyed because of all these prophecies and they weren't being fulfilled. And so these pastors finally woke up and said... We are leading the sheep off a cliff. We have introduced this. This isn't somebody else that introduced it. We introduced it. And so they repented. And they stood humbly before the church and said, We are wrong. And we are going to go back to preaching the Scripture verse by verse. Well, these prophets who had never given a negative prophecy are now prophesying death threats against the pastoral team because they said, We're going to start teaching the Scriptures verse by verse. Well, they stayed to their guns, and they came back to just teaching the Word of God. And they lost half their congregation. But then in a very short time, they said the Lord brought it all back and doubled it. So the church is bigger than it's ever been, which doesn't mean anything. But they were just pastors just saying just to show that when you do the right thing before the Lord, you can trust Him and leave the consequences to Him. But that was an example of a church where the leadership led the church in the wrong way. Fortunately, they woke up and realized what they had done. Be on the alert, verse 31. Verse 32, I commend you to God and the word of his grace. Those are the two principal things that the elder is to be oriented to. Not his paycheck, not the opinion of men, not the fear of men, but he is commended to God and to God's word. That's what we want. Men that will just say, this, my, my obligation is to the Lord. And my authority is the word of God. Elders, lead the church. Teach and preach the word. Protect the church from false teachers. Exhort and admonish the saints in sound doctrine. They visit the sick. And they pray. And they judge doctrinal issues. In biblical terminology, elders shepherd, oversee, lead, and care for the church. But let me be clear. There is only one head. And it is not the elders. It is Jesus Christ. And when it really comes down to it, as, as, as important, I think, as shared leadership is, and I've become more and more convinced of it as I've been doing this study... And I look back over my life and go, God, that's why this church has, fun- has functioned with so little acrimony is because of how the elder board has functioned. I really believe that. I think the same thing is true at His Hill, where I've been privileged to work for the last 30 years, that when the leadership is functioning in brotherly love, in humility, caring for each other, listening to each other, counseling each other, one of the things that happens in an elder meeting is that those elders are supposed to encourage each other. They need to be ministered to. And I tell you, that happens every time we're together. I leave encouraged. I remember all the years that Kelly and I would drive back to his hill together, and I'm just going, man, I may not have looked looked forward to it when I was first driving over, but there was never a time that I was driving home and I was going, thank you, Jesus, for that time. We leave encouraged. We're to pray for the body, and that means in our elder meetings, we spend quite a bit of time talking to each other about you all. Because I'm not in touch with all, your, with all everybody, I can't be. But Don and Jeff and Tom before that and Kelly before that, we spent a lot of the time just saying, what's going on? Going through the church directory, listening, asking about each individual, informing each other so that we can pray well for you. And if there's concerns, doctrinally or whatever, that we'd be alert to that and, and, and praying about that and looking for opportunity to speak into that. This is what the role is of an elder. God is so wise and so good. I can't At, at this point in my life, I just can't imagine if, if God were to move us away from, from, from Bernie and from his hill, I just can't imagine even attending a church where, the, where there was not shared leadership that understood and looked to the headship of Jesus Christ and encouraged the priesthood of believers. This is what God's model is. And it is rich and good. We all profit from it. I'll close us in prayer. Father, thank you so much again for your, your wisdom and your grace, God. Your ways are truly good, better than anything we could have ever designed. I thank you, Father, for the privilege we all have to be in relationship with you and to serve one another. For the reminder, God, that we need each other and we are all individually needed. And, Lord, I pray that we would just increasingly, as Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, abound all the more in love for one another and in our love for you. We thank you, God, that you've not left us alone, that you, Jesus, are our head, and you are actively engaged, actively involved, leading, speaking, directing, guiding, guarding, nourishing, causing growth, Lord. It all comes from you. And we want to be a people, Lord, who seek you, hear you, and respond in faith obedience to you. We thank you for this church, God, and we do seek you for your protection. There are savage wolves, Lord. They are without, and they could come in from within. And we look to you, God, to keep us alert and to protect us. In Jesus' name, amen.